It is Christmas season again. And it is that time of year when people start to do crazy things. It's that time of the year when many people find themselves flooded with impulses to do things that they don't normally do the rest of the year. I heard recently of a group of young people, middle schoolers and high schoolers, who got the wild idea that maybe they would approach a local grocery store and see if they had any excess food that they'd be willing to share with needy families so the kids could distribute those foods to those folks themselves. Well, they went up to the head of one of the local supermarkets and they asked about this very idea. And the store manager seemed at first earnestly interested, but as he thought about the request of the kids, he said, oh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing we used to do. But now with inventory controls and health regulations and such, you know, it's just against the rules. A man was driving home from shopping at the local mall, Christmas shopping, and as he was going down the highway, he happened to notice a car broken down along the side of the road. Its hood was up. There was a man in blue jeans standing there looking somewhat dejected with his thumb out. And for a moment, the driver of the car thought of stopping, seriously about stopping. In fact, his foot went to the brake pedal, but as he touched the brake pedal, all of these other voices began to rise up within him. The things he'd heard all of his life since he was a child, don't do stupid things. There are all kinds of crazies out there. You have no idea whether this guy is some kind of an axe murderer. And he took his foot off of the brake pedal and headed on down the road thinking to himself, you know, I'd love to have stopped, but you know, it's against the rules. It's just against the rules. You know the rules, don't you? You've heard those rules taught to you since you were a child and maybe passed them on already to the next generation. Don't talk to strangers. Be careful to whom you open up with your feelings. Look out for number one. Don't be foolish. Care too much and people will walk all over you in this life. In subtle ways, we all learn the rules about how far we can or should extend ourselves without risking harm. And it's good, these rules, It's good in a way that we understand these particular rules because they grow out of practical human experience with the dark side of life, with the realities of what really happens in this world today. It's essential that we remember the rules if for no other reason than they help us to recall that we live in a world where sin and evil are all too real, a world still in need, desperately in need of salvation. But as helpful as the rules are at times, as useful as they are, are they truly the ultimate standard by which to live our lives all the time? What happens, I wonder, when the rules begin to rule us, to dominate our way of being in this world, when the legitimate desire that we have to protect ourselves from error or harm results in dividing us from one another entirely results in making us 
like so many separate soldiers, each running for cover, each looking out at the threats that are all around us. What happens when the rules dominate our way of being in this world? There are those who could tell us what happens. Way back in the year 740 B.C., the prophet Isaiah discerned that in his land, a frightening trend had exercised itself, one that is common to the declining years of many great empires. At one time, the nation of Israel had been something of a light to the nations. It had been an unusual kind of society, one which had sparked conversation in the surrounding cultures because it was a society that was unusually marked by a spirit of interdependence among its citizenry. There was in the economic and the social and the religious life of ancient Israel this sense of interconnectedness that was unusual in its time. To be a Jew was to be passionately concerned with all people. It was to be not only concerned for your household, but for the households of others and even indeed the life of the alien and the stranger in the midst of the society. To be a Jew was to celebrate your common connection with everyone else and this one true God that Israel followed. To be a Jew was to work together to build a society where every able-bodied person did their own share. Everybody pitched in. Everybody's gifts mattered. But it was also a society in which if you happened to be weak or genuinely vulnerable, a widow, an orphan, a stranger, you had no fear that you would be left alone, that you would be left to fend on your own. Over the years, however, the tone in the life of Israel had changed subtly and slowly. A wider and wider chasm began to grow up between various people who had once seen themselves as members of this same interdependent family. The wealthiest members of Jewish society became increasingly insulated from the vast majority of citizens whose life was very often lived in a hand-to-mouth way. A growing class of poor people in Israel increasingly became hopeless and desperate and violent. And gradually these resentments, these stereotypes, these caricatures, this distance grew up between these two ends of Israeli society. And in time, even the religion of Israel no longer was enough to hold people together. Indeed, Israel's ancient faith became diluted through the centuries. There were other belief systems which infiltrated from surrounding cultures the life of ancient Israel, and these belief systems favored a a personal spirituality, a designer spirituality in a sense. It was a religion of multiple gods, idols in a sense, gods that would bring me what I needed at harvest time, gods that would bring me what I needed in the way of prosperity, gods that would bring me what I needed in the way of fertility. It was all about a self-focus, this new form of religion that began to take over the life of Israel. And so from top to bottom, Israel gradually became a society more and more of self-protecting self-advancing people, alienated from one another and from the God who had given them this miraculous life. 
And the law of interdependence, which had been the marker of the society, was replaced by a new rule. It's everyone for themselves. It's everyone for him or herself. Through this society came the prophet Isaiah. And filled with the grief of God himself over the disintegration of Israeli character and culture, Isaiah made two stunning predictions. First, he said, there will be national destruction as the result of these internal divisions. This society will not last. God will bring it to ruin. It will die of the consequences of its own actions and choices. And true to the word of Isaiah, destruction came to Israel in the year 722 B.C. The Assyrian army swept in from the north and easily overran the northern kingdom of Israel, plundering its wealth, killing many of its citizens, and selling the rest of them into slavery. And then secondly, Isaiah foresaw the coming of a leader who would teach the faithful remnant of God's people a new way, the original way, a better way. Now, most of us who have ever darkened the door of a church or have hung around a Sunday school over the years, we know something about what the prophet Isaiah said about this coming Messiah. Most of us have had exposure to Christian culture will understand that this particular promised one had particular characteristics to him. Uh, When he says, Isaiah says in verse 1, that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit, we know what he's talking about. We understand that Isaiah is predicting that the Messiah is going to come from the severed trunk of the family tree of Jesse. And we know that Jesse was the father of King David. We know we're being told by Isaiah that the royal line of leadership that got chopped down when the Assyrians came is going to be restored. A new life is going to spring out of that, that stump. And so when 800 years later, A rather remarkable child is indeed born in Jesse and David's hometown, Bethlehem. And when this child bears uncommon fruits of character, and when this child inspires amazing fruitfulness in the lives of other people, we know that the fulfillment of the prophecy has occurred. We recognize the anointed one in the person of Jesus Christ. When Isaiah goes on to say in verse 2 that this leader will be filled with an authority greater than any other, for the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, even the casual churchgoer finds his or her mind running perhaps to a particular scene. We can see the carpenter of Nazareth walking into the River Jordan. We, We remember the story of how the Holy Spirit came and rested upon him like a dove, the Bible taught. And we realize that in the person of Jesus, the prophecies of Isaiah are being fulfilled again. These are just some of the things that we know or have heard about 
the one who came at Christmas. What I want to ask you this morning, however, is whether or not we really grasp the extent to which the coming of Jesus changed the game. Do we really understand the extent to which this Messiah who came at that first Christmas came against the rules by which human beings typically conduct their affairs these days. And I want to ask, is our allegiance to him, is our way of following this particular Messiah changing the way that you and I come at life to? As I've thought about it and studied this text for today, it seems to me that there are three specific rules of human behavior that Isaiah tells us that this Messiah, and by extension his followers, will come against. And the first of these rules is what I will call the rule of rejection. I'm talking about the rule that permits us to harden our hearts permanently against certain people. I'm talking about that rule, validated so often by our peers in the society around us, that allows us to write off forever people who hurt us or with whom we disagree. I'm speaking of that rule that lets us dismiss people as irredeemable or as fundamentally useless because of what they've done or what they've said or what they believe or what they've failed to do in any of those categories. You know that rule. You've seen it practiced. And you may have practiced it yourself. Consider, however, this scenario. Israel had failed God time and time again. The Jews, who had been given every single privilege and opportunity, have used God's temple as a marketplace. They have ignored the poor. They have abandoned the great commandments. They have turned the promised land into a playground for their own selfishness. We know what response the rules of humanity would dictate that they be given as a result of this set of patterns and behaviors in their life. We know exactly what the rule would require. They should be cut off. God should have nothing to do with them. Reject them would be the cry of justice. And yet, this is God's response. At first, he leaves them to feel the consequences of their choices. He's like a a loving parent who lets a child experience the sting of the error. Not to hurt the child permanently, but actually to heal the child, to help the child see things in a fresh way and understand the implications of the choices made. To bring about a change of heart, but then rather than stewing in righteous resentment, as God certainly could righteously do, he crosses the border between heaven and earth. He closes the distance between the lost loved ones and his own heart. And he brings forth from the stump of Jesse an olive branch of peace. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? 
Isaiah tells us in verse 5, it is because God does not live by the rule of rejection, but by the spirit of faithfulness, or as it is rendered in the Hebrew sometimes, by the spirit of faithful love, steadfast love. That is why God looks at you and me the way he does. It's why he looks at us as we move around in our private, protected worlds and does not stop ever trying to reach us, no matter how far we walk away from him, no matter how miserably we fail him, no matter how self-sealed we become, no matter how superficial our religion is, no matter how hypocritical our practices are, no matter how deeply we have hurt him or others or ourselves, God refuses to ever brand us as a lost cause. He just never gives up in this lifetime on us. Rather, he looks at us with this faithful love that just longs to reconcile us with himself and with one another and to bring us on home. This is the heart of God, Jesus shows us. God is not blocked either by a second of the common rules of our age. God is not stopped by the rule of appearances either. Many years ago, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy got a glimpse of this reality uh, one particularly chilly evening. It was approaching Christmas time, and, and Tolstoy went out for a walk, as was his habit in that particular season. He went out walking through the streets of his city, and was accosted by a beggar who saw his fine clothes and wanted his attention, and you know what else he would wanted from him. Well, Tolstoy normally uh, ignored these kinds of people. In fact, when he saw them coming, he could recognize the clothing, the smell, everything said, this guy is out for my money. Tolstoy, this time, felt himself seized by a different kind of spirit. He actually stopped and engaged the man. And when the man asked him for money, Tolstoy began to reach around in his coat pockets and then in his pant pockets and realized to his dismay that he had left home without any money at all. No wallet, no coins, nothing to give to this man. And he turned to him and said with genuineness, I'm so sorry, brother, but I seem to have left my house tonight without anything in my pockets to give to you. And to his amazement, the face of the beggar transfigured before him. And the man said, no, that's quite okay. For you see, you have already done something for me greater than anyone has done in years. You called me your brother. How difficult it is for many of us to understand the remarkable vision of God for the people who sit around us, who will pass by us this week, who populate this world, the faceless masses, how great is the vision of God for them. Isaiah says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. He will assess the needy with righteousness. 
The Messiah will not be put off by people's clothes, is what my, the, the prophet's telling us. He's not going to be distracted by the appearance of people's clothes. He's not going to be put off by their bad manners. He is not going to be uh, dissuaded by their awkward ways. He is not going to be affected by the uniform of their poverty or their piety or their, or their pridefulness or even their prosperity. The God who comes to us in Jesus Christ is not governed by the rule of appearances at all. Not at all. What he is drawn to is need. That's what he sees. In the well-heeled person, in the shabbily dressed person, in the tall and the short and the wide and the thin and the rich and the poor and the suburban and the urban, what he's drawn to is their need. And above all other needs is this desperate desire every human being you and I meet has to be known as a brother or a sister, as a member of the human family, as someone without whom the party just would not be the same. Do you have that perception of people? Do you look at people this way? as you meet them in the flow of life. Isaiah predicted that someone was coming into this world who would break the rule of rejection, who would overcome the rule of appearances, and who would finally destroy the rule of enmity. You know that rule. I know you know that rule. It is all the rage today. It's the law of the jungle. It's the way of life we now take for granted in America today. It is the rule that fuels tribalism of every single kind, religious, political, social, economic, tribalism. It is the belief that at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people. There are eaters and there are those who are eaten. There's us and there's them. And if we do not crush and conquer and consume and control them, they're going to get us. They're going to sooner or later, the competition is going to overtake us. And so we defend ourselves or we assault the other side. But Isaiah said that into this world will come somebody who revises that rule. And who will bring peace even between enemies. And to get at this idea, he throws out this wild, crazy vision of this kind of reconciliation actually happening. He says the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will actually lie down together. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. It's an insane vision. <laughs> it's an impossible vision. It is an unnatural vision. It is an impractical vision. It is an unlikely vision, this vision of the kingdom of God, except for the fact that now and then there have been people who have been willing to risk everything in order to enter into it.
Back in the darkest days of World War I, at Christmas time, in fact, on Christmas Eve 1914, the war temporarily came to a halt on the front between France and Germany. Already by this date, only five months into the war, more than 800,000 men, women, and children had been slaughtered or severely injured as a result of the war. And yet as the sun went down on that particular Christmas Eve, a very strange spirit began to settle across the lines. It began when British soldiers raised lighted Merry Christmas signs toward the German lines. And in a matter of moments, both sides were actually singing Christmas carols across the battlefield toward one another. In a a matter of moments, uh, people began to reach out and to move forward in an absolutely bizarre way. In fact, by Christmas morning, uh, officers on both sides were unable to present, prevent their troops from leaving the trenches and actually walking out to meet the enemy in no man's land. And there, exchanging candy and cigarettes, German, French, and British soldiers passed the entirety of Christmas Day in peace along miles of the front. In fact, so pervasive was this spirit of reconciliation that overtook that battle line, that along some stretches of the front, that spontaneous truce continued not just through Christmas Day, but all the way through the 26th as well, neither side willing to fire the first shot. At long last, the war finally resumed when fresh troops arrived from the back lines that had not been in on this original vision. And when the high command on both sides issued a decree stating that further informal understandings with the enemy would be punished as treason. And life went back to the rules. But at Christmas time, long ago, there came into this world one who was willing to take issues with the rules of the worldly kingdom, even if that meant being punished severely as a traitor. Jesus knew there was coming a kingdom before which all of the shallow rules of this world would finally pass away. Jesus understood that in that kingdom... The rejections and the appearances and the enmities that rule this world will be no more. They will be no more. All we would see when the final day came was the steadfast love of God, bathing everything and everyone in his light. All we would recognize now on that final day would be the community of brothers and sisters we could have had all along if we just dared to believe it, to work for it. All we will see then will be a fellowship of former enemies forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now and then, around Christmas time, 
Somebody wakes up to that reality. Maybe that's why Nelson Mandela came out of prison 27 years later and chose the way of reconciliation, not the way of retribution, because he had caught a glimpse of the great vision. Maybe that's why some courageous Republicans or Democrats are going to walk steadfastly across the aisle in these coming days and perseveringly, against the pressures all to the contrary, work to forge a change, to bring about a revolution like we need in our political culture today. Maybe that's why a certain grocer that I know about changed his mind as he thought about it and decided that he would round up as many donuts and apples as he could and give it to that group of kids so they could deliver that food to some of the poorest families of our community. Maybe that is why the man driving down the street away from the mall onto his home did decide to hit the brakes and turn around and go back and take into his car someone who turned out not to be a serial killer after all, but a brother he just had not yet discovered. Maybe that is why an old resentment in your life or an off-putting appearance in somebody else's life or a social division in all of our lives will not stop you from doing something this week that shows that you know what steadfast love really means, who your brothers and sisters truly are, and what constructive alliances are yet possible when we serve the name of the king. Beloved, there is coming another Advent. This one we celebrate today is the first one. But there is coming another Advent, a a day when Christ comes again, and the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, all of these informal understandings that Jesus has called us to live by in this time will become the permanent practices, the formal understandings of a bold new creation. Please expect that day, okay? Live with expectation of that day in your hearts and minds. Ready yourself for it now. Somewhere, somehow, with somebody this week, dare to live against the rules. Please pray with me. Great God, we ask you to help us to believe. Great God, we ask you to help us believe as children themselves believe. More in the principles of your kingdom than in the rules of human society. Create in us a heart like Jesus has for people. Then send us your body on earth out into this Christmas season to remind our world what kind of king has truly come and is coming again. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.